We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. So, uh, for instance, they could have me say things like, President Trump is a total and complete... This is the third episode of the Big Picture Medicine podcast, and I'm Mustafa. What you just heard there was a deep fake. A fake video made by Jordan Peele using an artificial intelligence technique called Generative Adversarial Networks, or GANs. Using this technique, you can feed in video of someone speaking, and then generate a completely new video of them saying whatever you want. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Siegfried Wagner about how these types of technologies can be used in medicine. We also speak about Alt's-Eye, which is an unprecedented study going on at Moorfield's Eye Hospital. It's looking at 2 million retinal images and seeing how these can be used to predict diseases such as Alzheimer's using, of course, AI. I hope you enjoy this episode. It'll be particularly interesting if you're into ophthalmology and you want to deep dive into how some of these AI techniques work. How much can you tell about someone from looking at their eye? Classically, we know you can tell about poorly controlled disease states. Um, the typical ones being high blood pressure. So most people will know that blood pressure can affect the back of the eye and it can do this in a uh, diverse set of ways. And, and you can use those to actually uh, stratify people uh, with their risk of death. So even back in the 1930s, people could look at different features um, in the blood vessels at the back of the eye and actually there's a really strong association with survival rates. That's blood pressure. I mean, diabetes is obviously one of the classic uh, things that affects the eye, and that is known to be associated with diabetic control, but also other features that can come into it, such as blood pressure and uh, smoking, for example. And then what's emerging more, because what I'm focusing on are, you know, the real globally leading causes of morbidity, mortality. The other thing now is, is dementia, neurodegenerative disease. And that has been... Uh, that's a more recent understanding. When I say more recent, I mean just the last couple decades and really only the last decade. There's even a little bit of evidence that people can use retinal features for um, psychosis yeah, and um, in particular with the development of schizophrenia. So there's lots of, you can tell. So that's all classical traditional epidemiological analysis, I'm looking at this, I know that they have this disease, I look at this association. But now that we have large amounts of data and we have high dimensional data, things such as the you know, imaging of the back of the eye, we can start using other techniques, more modern techniques, and the thing that everyone's reading about has a lot of hype or these new types of, or these new um, artificial intelligence methods, so things like deep learning. And now we found that... Um, actually using deep learning, we can derive even more about people um, uh, just from the back of their eye, from simple retinal photographs. So in 2018, you know, there was a big group, there was a big paper from Google Brain which showed that from a single retinal photograph, you could, um, with impressive accuracy, predict the person's age. Biological sex as well, you could predict just from a retinal photograph. By, uh, with 98% accuracy. And so what's really interesting is that we've known it, for something like that is we've known that as we get older, certain things change at the back of the eye, the arterioles get more tortuous, the caliber changes. So it 
is not surprising that AI or deep learning can tell us that someone's age. Perhaps it's surprising it can do it so accurately, but that it gets that. But we didn't know that um, you could tell someone's biological sex from looking at the back of their eye. And the point of mentioning that is that these um, deep learning, you know, has the potential to obviously give us um, things that we may know about, um, perhaps in a more accurate fashion, but also it spawns this area of discovery science. You know, does it identify new biomarkers we hadn't considered before? So the study you're working on um, is called Alt's Eye, which is a play on the word, words um, Alzheimer's and eye. <laughs> so what exactly is that and what are you looking for? So to give you a bit of the context that a lot of this work we've done and a lot of the papers I've mentioned rely on these large, expensive, prospective epidemiological studies. So things like UK Biobank, which costs tens of millions of pounds, is incredible with the amount of data you have on each individual. The problem is that, you know, often these are healthy patients. These are healthy cohorts. Um, they rely on patient recruitment. The populations might be quite homogenous. Uh, so Biobank, for example, I, I can't remember, the, but, you know, it's over 92% Caucasian and they're healthy people. So one other option is to try and leverage real-world data, and that's what Outside tries to, um, to pioneer. Outside is a, is a record-level data linkage set which um, links images taken at Moorfields Eye Hospital between 2008 and 2018, so 10 years of retinal images, that's retinal photographs, something called OCT, optical coherence tomography. It takes those images and it links those with national data on um, hospital episode statistics. So those are um, admissions data, outpatient clinics, A&E attendances on a nationwide level. So um, anytime you go to a hospital and you're admitted for day case surgery or you're admitted for some inpatient stay, that is coded within hospital episode statistics. That's really since a long time, but in particular, the coding has improved in quality since 2004. And you can, through a long series of approvals, um, retrieve that data. And it's not, to the best of our knowledge, it's not really been linked at really high volume with ophthalmic imaging. That was what Outside sought to do. Um, we spent the last two years, so Pierce Keen, who's my, um, uh, my supervisor and mentor, uh, we spent the last two years getting the necessary approvals in place of linking or duplicating the images at Moorfields and linking them with hospital episode statistics data. So what does that mean? Well, that means that you have a data set of patients who may have had a retinal photograph, let's say, in 2012, um, and they were fine, they were well, but actually in 2018, they, end, or they started to develop or they developed dementia or Alzheimer's disease, or they could have had a heart attack or a stroke, for example. And so we've got imaging that predates that. The goal being, can we identify or can we establish that there is some, some predictive value in these images that will help us to identify who pa those patients who are most at risk? So you're taking these retinal images and then you're looking at patient outcomes later on mm -hmm. and then trying to draw some kind of connection. That's right, yeah. And then why is it specifically Alzheimer's that you've looked into? Mm. I mean, we've known for some time that people who have Alzheimer's disease, they have thinner nerves at the back of their eye, something called the retinal nerve fiber layer. So we've known that at a cross, in terms of cross-sectional data, if you measure the back of the eye of someone with Alzheimer's and you measure an age-adjusted, uh, or an age-matched, sorry, control, 
they have uh, there, there's a significant difference in the realm of neurofibrillaria. But what's really emerged in the last sort of 15, 18 months, perhaps before that, but at least very convincingly so, is that these are not just um, indicative of prevalent dementia, but also they predict cognitive decline and dementia. And that's come from UK Biobank, and that's come from the Rotterdam study. Um, and interestingly, they were published in the same issue of JAMA Neurology in, I think, October 2018. Uh, UK Biobank showing that, okay, patients who complete the mini mental state examination, uh, it, they those who perform more poorly on the test have a thinner retinal nerve fiber layer, which is interesting. But what's even more interesting is they showed in about, I think, 1,250 patients that those who have a thinner retinal nerve fiber layer, they also are more likely to do worse on that cognitive questionnaire after a few years. Rotterdam study then shows something very similar, but now it's actually looking at labels of dementia. Okay, so it actually shows it's not just cognitive decline, because cognitive decline is one thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean someone has a neurodegenerative disease. They actually show it in the cases of uh, in dementia. How do you see your results being used? Do you see them being used in screening for Alzheimer's, do you see, see them being used as a diagnostic tool? What, how do you see them being used clinically? Yeah, so um, that's really important, thanks. Um, it would be great if it was a diagnostic tool, but I think that's very unlikely. What's more likely is that is, is a sort of screening situation. Now, we're talking here in the UK, and in the UK we have a particular um, infrastructure for eye health which is mainly through community optometry. And if you've listened to the news, I probably shouldn't say the name, but the largest franchise in the UK, let's say for community optometry, they now have an OCT device in every single branch. So this is really, you know, imaging, high resolution imaging of the back of the eye is ubiquitous. Okay, so there's a role for screening. I mean, back in 2012, um, you may have heard of the over 40 health check uh, for cardiovascular disease. Um, back in 2012, I can't remember the number, but around, I think, a third or less than a third of people actually attended that um, for cardiovascular disease screening. It has improved since then, the uptake, but, you know, a smallish number. But more than half, more than even around three quarters of the population will attend an optometrist because vision is generally is a very important sense. I mean, in fact, there's some work from a collaborator here, David Crabb at City University, which has shown that the patients... Um, respect vision over the other senses highly. Uh, in fact, I think they even showed that a patient was willing to give up five or eight years of life if to maintain their vision. It's that important to them. So people generally uh, consult, at least at reasonable frequency, they consult community optometrists. So what I mean is that there's, a, there's this ability to target a group that may not necessarily go to their GP for, hey, I'm fit and well, but I just want to have some risk stratification for cardiovascular disease or for dementia. So it's screening. I mean, it's a slightly controversial area because um, we don't have effective treatments for dementia at the moment. So a lot of people would say, well, what's the point in picking up a screening test um, if you don't have a treatment for that condition, this goes through the Wilson's criteria for screening. And I have a lot of responses to that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if we'll go into that. But screening tool um, is, 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 is one objective. Another is, is this a useful biomarker uh, for clinical trials? Could it be used as a clinical trial endpoint? So one of the challenges, I think, in some of the uh, clinical trials that look at drugs for dementia is that they often don't pick up patients early enough, but also the 
clinical trial endpoints are highly invasive. <clears throat> they might be the level of amyloid on CSF, you know, lumbar puncture, or they need an MRI PET amyloid protocol, which is obviously expensive, um, labor-intensive, requires expertise to to um, to analyze. So with something like a non-invasive OCT scan that takes five to 10 seconds, and even I can take one, and it's relatively cheap. Is that something that uh, could provide an alternative? So that's another question. If there, if, there is no, if there is no benefit of early intervention or no treatment, then why are we screening for Alzheimer's? Uh, I think that um, the first thing is that it's screening. It's not diagnosis. So they could, go then, they could then go and have further testing. And actually, well, we've identified you have a high risk or you have a lot of vascular disease. And there are many things we can do to optimize that. So it's not just about a risk of dementia. It's about a risk or it's about the presence of risk factors for that dementia. Another is that actually when you survey most of the people who have a family history of dementia, for example, they want to know. They want to know if they're at risk of this. Um, there's a really huge survey that comes out in the US um, from one of the Alzheimer's research organizations there or charities there. And actually, something like over 80% of people, they would want to know just if they were at slightly higher risk. Um, I mean, there is some mild, weak to mild evidence of some pharmacological treatments in early stages of disease. And then there's all the other measures that people, you know, it does encourage smoking cessation, it can encourage exercise, it can encourage improving your diet and things like that. Um, but I still acknowledge it is, a, it is a controversial area. We don't yet have a treatment. I mean, the other hope, of course, is that there's a lot of money going into dementia research, is that we actually do have something um, in the future. Um, we're thinking ahead. So in terms of AI, there's been a lot of talk of black boxes. Um, or the black box, which means that, which the argument would go that you would put these retinal images into some sort of algorithm and it would come back with a yes or no, this person is going to develop Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, and you wouldn't know how it's come about finding that decision. Now, is this something that applies to what you're doing? And are there ways of finding out what the algorithm is looking at? Like, how exactly do you know that it's looking at the retinal nerve fiber layer and not something else? Yeah. So, um, and this is very much um, my opinion. So I think that, at least in our approach, the first would be do, to do some traditional statistical modeling. So that's segmenting things like an OCT. So you measure someone's nerve fiber layer, for example, and then associating, seeing how that associates with the development dementia. And then you can get an idea of how strong that, that association is, how strong that signal is. Then going on in the later steps to employ something like deep learning, some, a, a new form of AI, on, um, which is particularly powerful for medical imaging data, you can see what incremental value that sort of model gives over the traditional uh, association I was describing earlier. If there's a huge difference in that, then as you say, you want to see, well, what's it picking up? I mean, is it picking up noise? Is it just that, for example, people with cognitive impairment generally give poorer quality scans because there might be more movement artifact, for example? Or is it that they're more likely to consult eye services because, they, uh, because of cognitive impairment and so they have more cataract? So you're right, we have to be very cognizant of those potential confounders. There's a lot of work going into solving the black box problem. I mean, nothing's really solved it, but there are techniques that look at the interpretability uh, of these models. Some that are used, especially in the ophthalmic world, would be things like occlusion testing. So you can occlude certain parts of the image and you can see 
how does the accuracy of your particular deep learning model change? So there's a nice paper in, in Nature, Biomedical Engineering, by, again, the Google Brain Group that looks at the detection of anemia from a fundus photo. Um, and, uh, uh, and what they find is that occlusion of a lot of the fundus photo does not particularly affect the model accuracy, but when you occlude the optic nerve, uh, accuracy drops off very quickly um, as you progressively occlude it more. And that gives you some idea, well, this is obviously crucial to the decision-making process. So you can do something similar to that on OCT scans or any other medical imaging. So occlusion means that you cover up part of the yeah, image. Yeah, exactly. And if your model stops working, then you know that it was probably using that part of the image. Exactly. So in that in that study, for example, they'll they use many different occlusion techniques, if I recall. But one is you might, for example, occlude the peripheral retina. So you just black it out so that all you can see is the macula and the optic nerve um, and the major blood vessels around the, uh, the, the macula and the posterior pole, and you see that the accuracy is still very good. Okay, so the peripheral retina is probably not that um, uh, influential in the model's decision. And you can do that in different, you know, you can then cover the vessels, you can then cover the macula, then you can cover the optic nerve. So that's one technique. I mean, there are other techniques. Um, you can use uh, saliency maps, which essentially show you, again, something very similar, pixels that contribute most to the attention. Where is the, where is the model looking? You know, this whole field is called attention, really. At what parts of the image is the model looking at? Uh, what is uh, affecting its decision-making uh, process? And there's been other advances as well in the field in general. There's GANs, which are gener generational adversarial, adversarial networks. Yeah. How do you say that? Yeah, generative adversarial networks. They're fascinating, aren't they? Yep. Can you, what impact could they have in ophthalmology? Yeah. Um, so just to quickly mention what, what are uh, GANs. So, so most of the stories people read in the news about AI and deep learning, you know, as good as doctors uh, or exceeds the performance of doctors. So most of these are discrimination models or classification models. Terms are kind of used interchangeably. You put an image into the model and it comes out with a decision. It comes out with, I classify it into this category. This is the diagnosis, you know, this is the diagnosis. So those are discriminatory models. But there's another type of model called a generative model. So these are models that produce or construct data. So there's a lot of potential applications for this. I mean, the most obvious one that gets a lot of hype is, is, is synthetic images. So these can generate images which are have never been seen before, don't exist in the real world. You know, you may have seen some of these stories where you've uh, a GAN has been fed loads of images of celebrities and it generates new images of people who look, well, usually they look feasible. I mean, some of them look slightly abnormal and you know they're synthetic because of certain pixels, but generally they produce these images of faces which don't actually exist in the real world. Right, and there's videos of politicians Yeah, that's right. Even quotes. today there was some of that uh, in the news, these deep fakes and how 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 dangerous they the potential of them is. So that's that's one particular application. But there are many applications of GANs, some of which we're looking at within the research group. Um, I mean, you can look at GANs for something called cross modality transfer. So, so people have um, input images from one type of uh, imaging modality and been able to output a different imaging modality. So can we extract other data that maybe the human eye can't see? So with a GAN, you could take um, two X-ray images, so say an anterior and lateral view, and then form a CT from that. 
Yeah, so there's some work looking at how you can go from something like a I mean, more typically a CT to an MRI. You can, I mean, I think there have been some efforts in essentially, can we gauge three-dimensional information from, from two-dimensional imaging? And it's challenging. The difficult thing is assessing how faithful this process is. I mean, how much do the, do the generated images actually resemble the, uh, the real? And also for clinicians, how can they tell the difference? And there are many different ways to assess that. So I don't want to embarrass you, but you've obviously had quite a successful academic career or ongoing career. <laughs> and I'd like to ask everyone this. And the question is, along your journey, have there been habits you've picked up, ways of thinking, resources, books, anything that you would recommend someone who wants to follow a similar path to you? Yeah, so um, that's very flattering. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it's that glowing. But, uh, um, so I think one thing that I've always benefited from from medical school to now are really inspirational and supportive role models. So I think um, uh, you may have heard this before, but it's really important to identify role models at every stage of your career and to spend as much time as you can without frustrating them, obviously, <laughs> um, because they will um, provide you with enormously helpful feedback and also you can learn a lot from how they've proceeded in their lives um, and their academic careers. I mean, I've benefited from really inspirational role models at medical school and also through my early training and even now in my PhD. Um, and they don't need to be in the area you're interested in, you know. Uh, things like clinical medicine and research in academia, I mean, it transcends specialties, a lot of these, uh, the skills that they learn. I hope you liked that episode and make sure you subscribe if you did. If you have any thoughts or feedback, the best way to get in touch is on Twitter at Mustafa Sultan. That's M-U-S-T-A-F-A-S-U-L-T-A-N. Links to everything mentioned can be found in the show notes. Thank you.